those that were reading along or those that had uh, read this gospel passage uh, that we have today uh, before you came, which, of course, I always encourage you to do, realize, especially if you paid attention, that there's a number of chapters that are dropped out in between. We have four verses from the first chapter. Of course, St. Luke didn't write in chapter and verse. Those were added some years later. But uh, we have that prologue of the Gospel of Luke. And if we were reading it in sequence, which uh, I'm so happy to hear so many did uh, that during the season of Advent, we realized that the announcement of the uh, conception and birth of John the Baptist, and the conception and birth of Jesus, and all those things, the baptism of the Lord and the, uh, the temptation in the wilderness, have all occurred before this, uh, in between where we pick up again. And there's a reason the Church gives us this prologue, even though it's so many, ver- so many chapters, so many pages beforehand, and I think it comes down to two reasons. One is because the Church wants us to have and hear the Gospels in almost their entirety throughout the, the, uh, the full cycle of the lectionary, but also because it reminds us that what we have in today's Gospel in the second half is also a prologue of types. And first, the prologue that St. Luke is writing, uh, and uh, I, I have to admit I love this prologue because he tells us exactly what he's doing. He's, that he's basically interviewed all the eyewitnesses anew, and he's setting down an ordered sequence for the most excellent Theophilus, who was more than likely his patron, somebody who provided the materials he needed, the money he needed in order to, to travel, to sit down with the various people of, uh, you know, I can't help but think of the Blessed Mother, him, St. Luke sitting down with the Blessed Mother over a glass of wine, and, and St. Luke just asking questions. Tell me about the Annunciation. Tell me about the Visitation. Tell me about standing at the foot of the cross and her just sharing all the things that she's pondered and treasured in her heart all these years. St. Luke records them accurately anew in an ordered sequence for one reason, so that he may have certainty in the teachings that he has received. And not only is it for Theophilus, the patron, I shudder to think what would have happened if Theophilus would have said, oh, that's great work, St. Luke. Oh, I enjoy this book so much. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to wrap it up and put it away. I'm not going to share it with anyone. That would have defeated the purpose, of course, too. So St. Luke not only is writing to Theophilus, but to all of us. Yes, even us, some 2,000 years later, that we too may have certainty in the faith. I'd like to point out that Theophilus is not only a person, but his name literally means friend of God. So St. Luke is writing to all the friends of God that we would have certainty of the faith. If we have any uncertainty, he seems to be hinting at us, read the Gospels again. But then we have Jesus beginning his ministry. This is, of course, after the temptation in the wilderness. He comes to Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he's handed the scroll to read. 
for those that uh, think everyone was uneducated or, or whatever, we have to remember uh, at least Jesus uh, and, and Jews at the time were, were taught to read Hebrew at least enough that they could go through their bar mitzvah. But Jesus has handed the scroll and he's handed the passage that we hear today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim you're acceptable to the Lord. It's a prophecy that we hear in Isaiah that, that Isaiah is saying it's fulfilled in me, but Jesus now is saying it's fulfilled in their hearing. But we have to remember it's not fulfilled as in completed, but just begun. That Jesus' ministry, his whole task, is to proclaim the good news. Proclaim the good news that as good as the Old Testament was, this is even better. And we hear about that in the Old Testament good news today in our first reading. As Ezra stands up and reads from the law, most likely one of the first five books of our Bible, the Torah. Did you catch that? He began at sunrise to midday. That's about six to eight hours. He's there reading the Old Testament. And the people are crying because they had forgotten. They hadn't had anyone tell them, this is what we hold on to. This is what we believe. They needed to hear it again. And when they hear it, they're, they're moved to, to reconciliation. They're moved in their, in their thoughts and in their words of all the failures that they've did, all, all the things that they've done. And Ezra tells them, go home. Rejoice. Eat rich food. Celebrate. Because it's a day to start again. If that's true of the Old Testament, how much more for the new? How much more should we have certainty in the faith? How much more should we rejoice? That yes, while we may, may have sinned, we are sinners, that the Lord gives us a chance to begin again. So often we get the idea that Jesus' ministry ends with his death and resurrection, or it ends with his ascension. Sometimes we get the idea once Jesus sits on the throne at the right hand of God that that's it. <laughs> that's only when it begins. And St. Luke reminds us of that, actually, and by continuing. The gospel, the Luke's writings didn't end with the gospel. It ends with the Acts of the Apostles. As the apostles go forth and proclaim the good news, beginning in Jerusalem, in Galilee, then to the ends of the earth. It ends, of course, with St. Paul sitting in jail in Rome waiting. And it doesn't end there. The good news is that the good news doesn't end. That Jesus' ministry, yes, while he's not actively working on earth as he was in those days, multiplying bread or making water into wine or all those things, his ministry continues because he goes not to take a seat of relaxation, but a seat of governance, that he governs us. The ministry that he began continues in us. And the question I have for myself and for all of us is, 
Are we allowing that ministry to continue? Are we proclaiming the good news? Are we a church that proclaims liberty to captives? That, that proclaims forgiveness of sins? Now we say it, but are we really? It's so easy to say so much. And there's one particular aspect that the church more than ever needs to take an active role in. We marked it yesterday. I pray to God that we don't mark a 50th year of legalized abortion in these United States. And so often we hide and we play these games and, and yes, it's a terrible decision that a woman makes, but it's a decision that she should not have to make. No, really, it's a decision that she should not be able to make. And like so many have said, and, and I, I can't say it any other way, I don't dream of a time where abortion is illegal. I dream of a time when it's unthought of, unthinkable. So often, and I, I get so perturbed and, and, and disturbed when, when I hear these things like, oh, Jesus would have held the hand of a woman seeking an abortion. Yes, it's true, Jesus would forgive, Jesus would love, but he would not condone the killing of an innocent in the womb. He would proclaim there's a better way. He would proclaim liberty to the woman who feels caught in that situation. He would proclaim there's a better thing, a better choice. So often we as Catholics are accused of being anti-choice, and I keep wondering, well, where does that come from? Anyone that's... uh, planned a marriage or or a funeral, knows that the church gives almost too many decisions for readings and for prayers. The church is all about options and choices. However, the church says there is a time when, when a choice leads to a consequence and that the consequence is unavoidable. The consequence of making a choice, of being active in a particular way, is sometimes a child is a result. The child is not to be done away with. We see how that sin and that threat of human life from the very first beginning, the threat to human life at the very beginning, carries its way through. Keep thinking, you know, if it's so easy to see in math how an error follows all the way through. Some of us might, might know or have, have heard stories of mathematicians or scientists who fail to carry a one, just a one, and how it throws the whole number off. Or some who, who by order of magnitude, fail to, to recognize something, or somebody who, who did something in millimeters when it should have been centimeters, or all these things, that error carries all the way through, and the so too with the matters of life. An error at the beginning of saying, we can do away with a child in the womb, carries its way all the way through in everything, in every aspect. It pollutes our culture. And how do I mean? We see a wider embracing of euthanasia. We struggle with those that are struggling with life. And more and more I hear, recently, not in the United States as far as I remember, but a woman just simply put to death because she was depressed. Really? That's an error that comes from the beginning. 
having worked with those that are dying in the process of dying and, and seeing my own grandmother in hospice and, and there's a better way. We don't want to see anyone suffer, but we don't want to hasten their death either. And it carries its way through in other ways, in other forms. We see more and more pornography is the scourge that it is. How at an ever younger and younger age, I don't even remember the, the, uh, the last time I heard it going up. I think I heard recently the average age is now 10 when a boy usually is exposed to pornography. That leads to an objectification of women and it leads to huge problems. Huge, not only psychological, but actually medical. We see it going through our culture and yet the church stands and proclaims life. And so often her witness is left unheard. Why? If we have certainty in the teachings that we've received, if we have certainty that Jesus Christ is God who proclaims freedom to us, and if we have certainty that God frees us, that God forgives us, we need to be a people who then calls others to that freedom to remind all that there's a better way, a better way. It might take a struggle. It might be difficult. As I, as I share that, I'm remembering it's, it's kind of crass, but psychologists are reminding us now that sometimes we just need to embrace the suck, to embrace the hardships, to embrace them as the cross that Jesus Christ has given us, that's a more positive and spiritual way of saying embrace the suck. To embrace it and to say that we have certainty that Jesus Christ is with us in this difficulty, that he proclaims liberty to captives, even yet today, that he wants us to be free. He wants us to know you're acceptable for the Lord. Let us be a people of life that proclaims life and the dignity of life from the very beginning all the way to the end, that seeks to avoid all things that destroy life, that question life, that make life or others objects of our lust or objects to be done away with, to be bought or sold, to be used. Let us be people who continue the mission of Jesus Christ it begins with the proclamation that Jesus Christ has received the Spirit of God. But that Spirit of God is given to us, too, in our baptism, for those of us that confirmed in our confirmation. When we use those gifts that God has given, as we hear in the second reading, we become a body. And we become a body that cares about those that are suffering, those that are in difficult situations, those who have made perhaps wrong decisions, but we help them start to make right decisions, better decisions, that we care for them and bring healing through Christ to them.